On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Pastor Nate Pickowitz about R.C. Sproul, defender of the Reformed faith. So we cover topics like who is R.C. Sproul, what was his educational background, what was Ligonier, how did that come about, what were Sproul's main theological and pastoral contributions, what was his defense of the faith, what did that really look like, why was it so important for him, how did Sproul develop such a calm spirit in such spirited sort of topics and much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for serious church. And in thinking seriously, we want to cultivate a sort of intellectual culture that values things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Because we really think good virtues like those end up actually helping us to think better. Uh, When we get outside of our own silos and hear and become friends with other people that think differently than us, that helps us. And also when we look at our own confession and say, this is actually good news and not something I beat somebody over the head with. It's something that I can minister to them with and and help encourage them with. It's really good news for all of us. So that's what we're trying to do here with the London Lyceum. Uh, We like a lot of things like philosophy. We like Baptist theology. We like history, uh, especially Reformed theology, too. So this is going to be a treat for you guys. I think a lot of our listeners know and love Dr. R.C. Sproul. Uh, So we're going to have a lot of fun talking about him with Nate Pickowitz. So I am pumped. He's got a brand new book on Sproul. So this is why we're talking about him. R.C. Sproul, Defender of the Reformed Faith. It's with H&E Publishing. And it's got the forward by John MacArthur. So I'm super excited. And it's super affordable. So it's not like a $50 book. People can actually go buy this and afford it and read it. So go find it. Read it. Now, before we get into talking about Sproul and all the fun stuff there, Nate, can you give me a little bit of a bio of yourself? So where are you now? What are you doing? And then maybe why did you decide to write a book on Sproul? Why is he so important to you? Yeah, that's great. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Nate Pickowitz, I'm a pastor in uh, Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire. Go find that on a map. Uh, Gilmanton Ironworks, New Hampshire. It's uh, it's up in New England and um, pastor a church uh, called Harvest Bible Church. We planted that church uh, coming up on 10 years ago. Uh, married to my wife, Jess, so I have three kids. And uh, the Lord has been gracious to let me write books uh, in all my spare time, which uh, is very few moments of spare time, um, but just really enjoy uh, doing ministry. And uh, it's just really been a great joy to be able to write. And uh, to kind of the second part of your question, why RC? Um, I had not intended to write a book on RC Sproul. Uh, we were, I was actually taking a break. I finished a book called How to Eat Your Bible. And I'd finished that book. I just pumped out that one. And then American Puritans with Dustin Benj. And I was tired told my wife, I says, I'm going to take a year off. I'm not going to write for a year. And uh, the very next day, I got an email from H&E Publishing, and uh, I had done a few things with them before, and they said, hey, we have this great project that we're working on. It's a series of short biographies, and we want yours to start off the series. And I was like, well, okay, I'm kind of on a break. And they said, well, uh, it's R.C. Sproul. And I went, oh, get out of town. <laughs> I have to do that. Um, so approach the project with a little bit of timidity uh, because it's R.C. Sproul. And how do you write a book on R.C. Sproul? 
but also a lot of excitement because um, you know I've been reading his material and listening to him for about 12 years and really valued him as a teacher. And, uh, and especially after he passed, I started to take a, an inventory of everything I'd learned from him and it blew me over. I'm like, this, this man has, been, has had a remarkable impact on my life. So uh, it was just a great joy to study and research and read all of his books and ask questions and explore the stories and really get to know him. That, that time of research was uh, incredibly impactful uh, on my life and uh, just really grateful for the opportunity to write it. Well, Nate, thanks for uh, giving us some time today. I just wanted to begin by um, saying that I read your book years ago, uh, Reviving New England, and, and really enjoyed sure. that book. So um, that's Thank another you. one for folks to check out uh, by Nate. I think most uh, everyone who listens to this podcast is going to be familiar at least uh, to some degree with R.C. Sproul. But let's at least just start out with a brief bio of R.C., maybe a little bit about his early life and his conversion uh, and then his educational background and into his his ministry. Yeah, so he was, uh, R.C. was born in 1939, uh, right during the beginning of uh, World War One. His father went off to war for a bit, came back. Uh, he grew up in Pittsburgh. And uh, when he was a kid, he was kind of a jock and really focused on, on sports, loved sports, uh, loved all things Pittsburgh. And um, his father was, uh, was, went through a series of strokes and died when R.C. was 17. And it really had a, a profound impact on his life. And it really, even though he was raised going to church, R.C. didn't have a relationship with Christ uh, yet. He thought he was a Christian, but he really wasn't. And really, so the fa- his father passing really had a sort of a, uh, a compounding impact. It, it led to a series of questions and a series of explorations. And, and really, it wasn't until he got to college. He went to Westminster College and, uh, and outside um, Pittsburgh there. And uh, it wasn't until he got to school there where he met uh, one, of the, one of the captains of the sports team, one of the jocks, and the guy was talking about the Lord and uh, had a conversation with him, uh, realized his need for Christ, went home that night, confessed Christ, repented of all of his sin, believed on Christ, and was saved. And then from that point, he just begins to go on this, on this journey of education and exploration. He gets into uh, philosophy, studies philosophy, uh, ends up going to seminary, Pittsburgh Seminary, and uh, really just begins this elongated tenure of education really just to understand who is God. And that really became the, the hallmark of his life is understanding the person and the work of God and uh, changed everything for him. So uh, really just quite a remarkable man in his early years for sure. So I got to confess, I know Brandon is a total Sproul fanboy, so don't let him fool you. He loves <laughs> RC. Um, I'm curious about Ligonier. How did this come to be? Like when... Where did the idea come from? How did this grow? Because that's where I be, first became familiar with RC was through his ministry there. Um, so I'm just interested in sort of the backstory and how that flourished over time. Yeah. So I mean, Ligonier, that's the reason anybody knows RC. Uh, but early on, you know, after so he he did a, a his his degree at Pittsburgh Seminary, which was was a more of a liberal seminary. A few. Uh, conservative Calvinist pastors uh, or ministers, theologians, one being John Gerstner. John Gerstner was his mentor. Uh, leaves there, goes to Free uh, Free University of Amsterdam, studies under, um, oh, I'm going to blank on his name. Brandon, you know his name. Um, <laughs> this is what happens when you think on the fly. Um, uh, Burkauer. Mm. Studies under Burkauer 
and um, and really sort of formulates himself as a theologian there, gets out, begins teaching uh, at a few different schools. But it's not until he's in Ohio when um, when a, a, a series of businessmen and a woman named Dora Hillman approach R.C. He's, he's, a, he's a, a good teacher, and he's one of the, it's one of those things where they see a lot of promise in this guy. They like his teaching style. They think he's energetic. He's exciting. You know, he makes theology simple. They just like him. And they had conceived of this idea of a, basically of like a camp. It was like, a, this is during the Jesus movement in the early 70s. So 1971, they say, we're building up this big, huge, you know, camp over in the Ligonier Valley in Pennsylvania, and we want you to come and be our staff theologian. So he and his wife, um, you know, and his kids, they pack up the car, they drive back over to to Ligonier Valley, which is coming from Pittsburgh. I mean, it's out in the boonies, you know, I mean, he's got you know, 15 miles to his closest neighbor kind of a thing, and just begins to teach theology to people coming into this camp. And they run that camp for a dozen or so years, uh, you know, begin to host conferences and just do all kinds of things. And at a certain point, they realize that they just can't sustain a camp anymore. You know, you got a lot of overhead and food and building maintenance and all this other stuff. And so they make this executive decision in the early 80s to then migrate to an emerging uh, region, which was Southern Florida. So they go and they move the ministry to Orlando. It, it, it ceases to be called the Ligonier Valley Study Center, and they change it to Ligonier Ministries. And that's when it really takes off in the early 80s. And, uh, and they begin to send his tapes all around the world, and he's writing books and traveling. And so, I mean, it really it explodes for him, but uh, it's just a, the providence of God. So the, begin, the, movie, the ministry begins in 1971, and it's been going for over 50 years. And... Uh, I heard someone recently say that R.C. preaches more now, having passed on, than he did when he was here, because uh, the ministry just circles his stuff everywhere, and he's just a, just a salient voice for sound doctrine. Pretty remarkable. You know, Jordan jokes about me being an, an R.C. Uh, fanboy, but actually the folks at church do too, but just kind of indirectly. So I, every Wednesday night, I, uh, I will a, a board out uh, for the Bible study, and they always pickle me, all the folks at the church, about how I like to write on the board. And it's just, I think it's just me, like trying to channel my like inner RC, how I used to write on the chalkboard and stuff, at, mm-hmm. and all those Ligonier videos. But uh, I do think that the way he <clears throat> was able to take uh, serious and substantive theology and to be able to bring it um, down a couple shelves you know, and, and deliver it to the average layperson was, at least for me, um, that was probably the biggest uh, thing that stood out to me the most about uh, the way he did ministry. And, and the thing that I have, have tried to model uh, my own ministry um, after him is, is how he actually is able to, you know, he, he's not just, you know, uh, you know, giving simple things uh, to the folks at the church, but he's given them, you know, meaty theology, but he's doing it in a way that they can understand. And that's, I think what I most appreciate about him. But what do you, what would you say uh, were his primary theological and, and pastoral contributions over his career? I realize that's a huge question. So maybe just pick two or three things that you think were his biggest contributions. Yeah. So I think um, uh, RC, there's really in the book, there's really two main sort of thrusts that I, I try to make in the book. And and obviously, I'm tackling a person's life on 150 pages. I mean, there's just uh, so much to talk about, so much I couldn't say for the scope of the book. But, you know, I think that the biggest thing is that he, R.C., wanted to popularize sound doctrine. And when I say sound doctrine, I mean reform theology. 
Um, you know, he held to the Westminster standards. Um, he was he was articulate and well versed. Uh, he loved Aquinas. He loved Augustine. He loved Calvin. He loved Luther. Um, and he was just uh, his blood ran red with Reformation blood. He just loved Reformed theology. Um, and I think the thing about R.C. when it came to doctrine is that even though he'd put the cookies in the bottom shelf, so to speak, you know, he he didn't. He was never insulting to the to the hearer. He wasn't. He didn't. He didn't treat them like they were stupid. He knew that they were smart, but they just needed to understand the words. And so he would use Latin, and he would use all these. Uh, these wonderful theological words, but then he would explain them and tell stories and, se- and tell se- self-deprecating stories about himself. And, and he, w- he would phrase it in such a way that you could understand the theology. One of the mistakes I think that we make in, in our day is that we, we have two worlds. We either think that everybody has to be theological eggheads and only speak in Latin and never bring it down, or we don't want to teach anybody anything and just leave it at like ground zero. But the best communicators of truth, they do both. They, they reach people at a place they can understand, but they give them the sound doctrine of the word. And that's what R.C. did really, really well. So, so the, the, the treatment of doctrine for the, for the average person, I say there's a line, and I have my book, that he had a John Calvin mind with a Billy Graham reach. And really, nobody else had that. Uh, the theological depth and, and, um, and richness of doctrine, but yet he could still reach 50 million people. Uh, that's that's unprecedented. We don't have, you don't have people like that all the time. You either sacrifice one or the other. So I think doctrine is one thing. And I think the second thing that RC really wanted to do was um, not just communicate truth for the sake of truth, but he wanted to do it in a way that was gracious. Uh, RC worked really, really hard to, to bring sound doctrine, but he would do it with a smile on his face. And he would, I mean, he would go after Arminians like nobody's business, but he would always do it with a, with a smile. And his friends, he had a lot of friends who were Arminian and had different persuasions and Baptists and everything else. You know, he didn't, he didn't want to make enemies for the sake of making enemies. Now, if the truth divided, we'll let the truth divide. But he wasn't, he wasn't going to be the stumbling block. And um, reading his material and, and talking to some of his friends, um, you know, R.C., when he would get down from the platform in the pulpit, it was not uncommon for him to turn to his wife, Vesta, and ask the question, was I kind enough? Was I kind enough in what I just said? He really cared about making sure that he was gracious. Now, was he a perfect man? No, but he was gracious in how he communicated, but he wanted to make sure he was razor sharp with truth. So grace and truth, two big contributions from R.C. Sproul. Yeah, that's good. It, it, that second one is one that I really wanted to ask you about. Was there something in his life that really led him in that direction of seeking after kindness like that? Because there there are a few people that I can think of that are, uh, are of such a model of doctrinal conviction without being a total jerk about it, where you can That's be right. friends with people who are different and go after their ideas without going after them as people. So what was it that developed that sort of calm and cool spirit that he had? I think there's probably a lot of things to that. I think number one, I mean, he was attacked viciously when he was in school. Um, you know, not as much probably at Westminster, but when he when he got to seminary and even beyond, I mean, he was the conservative in the room all the time. I mean, he went to very liberal schools that as soon as he stood up and said anything doctrinally sound, he was attacked for it. Uh, at one point, one of his uh, he gave a uh, the senior speech. The dean of the seminary walked up and shoved the finger in his face and and borderline cursed him for what he said. So he was persecuted by people in his own school. So that had to have stuck with him somewhere. But if you think, if you think about it, Jordan, you know, 
all that is is modeling Christ likeness. You know, I mean, Scripture flat out says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, says that, you know, our warfare is not of the flesh, that we're tearing down arguments and strongholds, and this is, it's about words, it's about ideas, it's not about attacking people. So if you manifest godly character, that should lead to a person who's gracious to other people. And any mature, uh, thinking, uh, loving Christian should be able to respond in that way. I think part of the problem is that we get we get too addicted to the fight, and I think our ego gets boosted up, especially on social media. Thankfully, RC never had social media. I mean, he didn't know what a tweet was. It didn't. He didn't care to know. Uh, but when you have godly character, you respond in godly ways. And RC just didn't want to fight for the sake of fighting. He loved having friends. He he loved his friends. But when there was disagreement, I think about his disagreements with Chuck Colson and Jim Packer. Uh, he disagreed with them, but loved them and wanted to win them to the truth by any means necessary, which was the means of love. In your estimation, what would you say are the maybe the the specific battles, um, for lack of a better term, that that RC participated in? Um, whether it be inerrancy, that's one that's popping in my mind that that sure. has his fingerprints most on it when we look back on his ministry. Yeah, so he he pretty much fought every major battle uh, of the last fifty years in the in the evangelical sphere. But I think if you could nail down maybe two, you hit the first one. Inerrancy was his big one, and I would say the second one would be uh, was sola fide. But inerrancy, and that was in the seventies. They actually had um, an inerrancy conference at the Ligonier Valley Study Center, or actually it was a building close by. But in nineteen seventy, I think it was nineteen seventy three. They held a sort of a, a mini conference, and he had you know Jim Packer and John Gerstner and a bunch of guys there, and they they had written out a, a Ligonier a Ligonier statement on the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. That really became the backbone for what he did a couple years later with the uh, um, the uh, ICBI International Council for Biblical Inerrancy. That was the backbone of that, and RC. Uh, was really the architect of the uh, Chicago statement. I mean, there was a, a drafting team, but really, and when you read both statements, I mean, RC's fingerprints are all over that, and uh, and he was really one of the the lead guys pushing for that because he knew that if you don't have an inerrant Bible, uh, if you don't have an authoritative, uh, sufficient Bible, you don't have anything. And, and he saw that at the liberal seminaries. And when they jettisoned the Bible, think about Fuller in the 70s. When you jettison the authority and the inerrancy of the Bible, you always descend in, into free fall. Anything goes. And we're, we're seeing the byproducts of that even now. So inerrancy for RC was huge. The second was, was uh, sola fide. In the 90s, he was uh, fighting against the evangelicals and Catholics together. That was quite literally a battle over uh, faith alone. And um, went to really to war, not as much with the movement, because the, the movement was to try to unite um, all professing believers, Catholics and Protestants, for the sake of social causes, which is, you know, you could be a co-belligerent, as R.C. would say, in fighting for, you know, justice or fighting for whatever, you know, against abortion, against immorality. But as soon as you write a statement that say that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and have the same faith, and you're promising not to evangelize the other— then the red flags go up. And people like John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, D. James Kennedy, they're saying, no, no, if we, if we don't have sola fide, if we don't have, you know, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, then we don't have the gospel. And so that was his big thing. I mean, he wrote several books on this. One of his, I think one of his best books 
is a book he wrote called Faith Alone and, and argues through the entire ECT battle and really develops a complete doctrine of justification from the, you know, the, the nature of it, the forensic nature of it, to the grounds, to the means, to the ends. I mean, he works through the entire thing. It's a brilliant book and writes over and over again about this issue. It was, it was a hallmark issue for R.C. because he's fighting over the gospel. Um, and so R.C. fought that till the day he died. His last sermon, his second to last sermon was really on the gospel, all about the gospel. So uh, we can thank him for his faithfulness in that regard. Yeah, so the subtitle of your book, your Defender of the Reformed Faith, what other aspects of the Reformed Faith were key things that he sought to defend? Um, or whether it's it's still being fought now or it was sort of fought back then and it's been a little bit more settled. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, was fully convinced of of all of the Westminster standards um, to the point where he's even, you know, he has recorded debates over baptism with John MacArthur and debating over all kinds of things, nuances of Reformed theology, um, capital R, Reformed on, on some level, you know, some folks will argue that point, and that's fine. Um, but really, um, I mean, R.C. contended on every single aspect, and if you really, in, in the book, as I was studying his life, I began, I began to notice a pattern that really every decade of his life sort of follows one of the five solas. And um, I had to be a little bit creative to make this work on one of the decades, but really, you know, Sola, Sola Scriptura was the first decade of his life fighting for inerrancy. You get to the 80s, he's writing The Holiness of God, Chosen by God. He's really contending for uh, Sola Gratia. You get to ECT, he's quite literally fighting for Sola Fide. Uh, I weave in all of his uh, Solus Christus and contending against uh, Roman Catholicism uh, during his church years when he's planting uh, St. Andrews. And then the last decade of his life, I mean, he's doing all all kinds of things. I mean, world missions and writing children's books and writing music and really Soli Deo Gloria, everything for the glory of God. So, I mean, he was really, if you had to pin him down, I think R.C. would be happy to see his life uh, diced up into the five solas. I think that would make him happy. Uh, at least I think so. And uh, I think that was really his big thing was let's let's get the core tenets of of the Reformation back in the forefront of people's minds. And even even toward the end of his life in 2016, writing a statement on Christology, making sure that we have the doctrine of Christ right. So all of these main tenets of Reformed theology, he wanted to make sure that we are absolutely solid on these points of theology. If we don't have these, then we don't have anything. I'm curious. Uh, so, you know, pretty much this entire conversation has been uh, positive in, in nature. You know, we've talked about all of these things about R.C.'s life that uh, we think are good, that he modeled uh, certain virtues well. Um, but, you know, of course, and you mentioned this earlier, that he wasn't a perfect man, so we don't want to pretend like uh, we should try to emulate him in every single area. Um, so, are there any areas that you you would say that we shouldn't uh, that maybe he fell short that we could that we could learn from? I know, like we asked someone this question about Spurgeon before, and and the answer was was basically that Spurgeon almost worked himself to death. Like he he mm-hmm. uh, he didn't take care of himself, maybe in a way uh, that he should have. Do you have any thoughts on on Sproul uh, in that regard? Well, just don't smoke cigarettes; you'll be fine. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean. That was he smoked for quite a quite a number of years and and uh, COPD got the best of him at the end. But uh, one you know one of the challenges to writing a book uh, like this and I, this isn't the first time I've been asked this question. Um, and, and you know you write a book that's that's favorable or sympathetic to a, a figure like RC, and it's very easy to to take on the the charge of hagiography, you know, only pointing out their good their good points. And uh, 
one question I, I posed to one person is, you know, which one of his sins would you like me to highlight? <laughs> and, you know, when you think about it, when you pass on and your wife is still here, your children are still here, your ministry is still going, which one of your sins after you pass would you like people to talk about publicly? And so um, I have struggled with that. I mean, I'm not aware of all of his sins. I do know uh, a few stories here and there of things, uh, you know, that he uh, did, was guilty of personally, uh, but most everybody I've talked to really loved the man, and uh, he was he was a godly person. And, uh, you know, he, he had mistakes. I mean, there were times when he had a temper, um, you know, that the famous, what's wrong with you people, when he said that to the crowd, you know, later on in his ministry, uh, I'll tell you, that was not meant to be a funny line. That was not a joke to him. He was in a moment where he was frustrated because even though he'd been asked this question a million times, um, you know, he'd heard that answer so many times, you know, that God is somehow unjust. And he just was at the at the end of his rope and just said, what's wrong with you people? Like, you know, don't you know who God is? And so, you know, he was a man who would, he would slip into passions here and there. Um, and so, yeah, and I mean, no, no person uh, is beyond reproach. But I really, in this book, I really tried to just capitalize on, you know, what made R.C. great, uh, where we can learn from him. Uh, I'm not interested in writing a, a critical biography. I'll let that, I'll leave that to someone else 50 years from now after everybody else is gone and passed on and we can, you know, tear everything apart if we want to. But I just don't think there's a place for that for me as an outsider to that ministry right now. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty content just thinking about the things that are, are beneficial for the church at this point. Yeah, that's a good word. So I'm now here's a question for you that I just thought of on the fly. Were there any friendships that he had that were really influential or important in his own theological development or his own pastoral development that really shaped how he was as a pastor and a teacher? Absolutely. I mean, he, uh, I, I think several, first being his father, I mean, his father had a huge impact on his life. And really, even though he lost his dad at 17, um, you know, his dad was kind of always with him in his mind. And the last words his dad said to him was, I have fought the fight, I've kept the faith. And he, he quotes that verse from from Second uh, Timothy. And actually, at first, R.C. rebukes him and says, don't say that, dad. Well, he after his dad passed, he relived that moment over and over again. And so his dad was kind of always over his shoulder and he had a very loving relationship with his with his dad, and as he raised his own kids, was a very loving father to his own kids. And even his son, you know, uh, will tell you the same that he was just a very loving, you know, person. Um, so his father was a huge influence. John Gerstner was another one, probably the biggest influence theologically. Um, you know, Brandon, you're joking about you know channeling Sproul when you're writing on the board. F- frankly, you're channeling Gerstner. Uh, Gerstner was the one who pioneered that first, and R.C. you know t- took that from Gerstner. And even even R.C.'s growl really was Gerstner's growl. Um, and so even the way he spoke and and moved around and taught and and everything, I mean, really Gerstner. Uh, formulated so much of his thinking uh, through his love for Jonathan Edwards and uh, for Luther. R.C. loved Luther. Uh, and so Gerstner had a huge impact. Probably another one would be James Boyce. Uh, James Boyce was a, a really close friend of R.C. I get the sense more that theirs was a camaraderie, that they just saw so much of uh, the other in themselves, but yet Boyce was was so different than R.C. was. Uh, R.C., you know, was was more comical and, you know, he could rip, roar, and laugh. Where Jim's, you know, James Boyce is a lot more serious. But they just loved each other. 
And then even another would be John MacArthur. I mean, they were they were you know good friends for 25 years and loved each other. And uh, so there were a lot of these relationships that that really impacted RC. Uh, some theological, some more just personality driven. Uh, but he was definitely influenced by people around him. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say Vesta, his wife, uh, married to her for you know for the better part of his life. And uh, I think she kept him motivated. She kept him grounded. And uh, I think he was level-headed because of his wife. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. A couple months ago, I saw a, a video clip of Gerstner doing the chalkboard thing. And it's, I mean, the mannerisms and everything, it was it was amazing. It was like you were watching RC. So that's, yeah, Absolutely. Definitely, definitely where he got it from. So <clears throat> maybe a couple of uh, quick personal questions for you uh, at, at related to RC. Do you have any favorite uh, little anecdotes maybe or short stories uh, about RC, whether they're in the book or not, um, just favorite stories? And then what is your uh, one or two favorite uh, works by RC Sproul, favorite reads? Uh, favorite story, boy, I'll tell you. You know, honestly, so I, it was funny because when I was researching for the book, you know, you're always bumping into stories, especially because, you know, so much of uh, of RC, I mean, he's, even though he's with the Lord now, he's still here in so many ways because he's in the mind and consciousness of people around him. So I bump, I bump into people all the time and hear stories and I just roll laughing because it's just so great. But uh, one of the, my favorite stories, um, it's very small, very insignificant, but uh, he was out to dinner with some friends. I think he was with Chris Larson and Steve Lawson, maybe someone else. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson. And... Um, and they were just joking around and RC just got rip roaring laughing, like keeled over laughing to the point where he actually injured one of his ribs. And uh, they had to call Steve Lawson's brother, who was a doctor. And still Steve Lawson's brother shows up and starts to administer treatment to RC because he hurt himself laughing so hard. And uh, I just love that. You know, I love that story that this man who was so serious minded and so theologically precise and astute still had a sense of humor. Another one would be... Uh, uh, and and all, I know this because Dr. Lawson wrote this, but uh, when they were on a study tour together, Steve Lawson and R.C. Sproul, uh, Steve Lawson uh, famously can't pronounce the word indefatigable. Uh, so R.C. was on a tour with him and found a plaque with, uh, with <laughs> I think it was uh, Whitfield's plaque. And on the plaque was this word that Woodfield was an indefatigable and such and such. So he says, hey, Steve, come over here and read this plaque for our, for our group. So he comes around and he, he's stumbling over this word to try to pronounce it. And that someone captured a picture and you can see R.C.'s face beat red laughing because of his protege, Steve Lawson, not being able to pronounce a silly word. You know, so, so you know, such little tiny things, nuances teasing, you know, but just a loving kindness to other people um, that even in the midst of being a serious theologian, he had such a love for people and a good sense of humor. So I, I like those kinds of stories about R.C., just the humanness of R.C. Uh, in terms of his books, I mean, you know, who could, you know, pass up Holiness of God? It was a tremendous book. I'll tell you, I really love his book, Faith Alone. I think that's probably my, I've read that several times. Uh, I really do love that book. It helped me uh, just as a pastor, as a thinker, to formulate my doctrine of justification. One of the more helpful books he's written. Um, and I think Chosen by God is also a wonderful book as well. Also very helpful. Uh, but you really can't go wrong. I mean, anything he's written has been very good. But those those are probably my top three. Awesome. So the last thing I wanted to ask you was for those who want to read your other stuff, 
who are interested in following along as you release new books, do you have a place that they can go or is it best just to like Google your name and the books that come up? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Amazon, I've got a, a page that has everything I've done so far. Uh, it's funny that you say that because I actually just, uh, for no reason at all, I just put a thread on Twitter of everything I had written because um, people who are new to following me don't know that I've written other stuff. I mean, Brandon, you said you read Reviving New England. Thank you for doing that because no one knows I wrote that book, you know? So, you know, you put your heart and soul into writing material and you don't know who is, who's going to read it. But, um, you know, yeah. So, I mean, you could go on to Amazon. All my stuff is there. Um, you know, I try to post things here and there for that. But I, I have a pretty eclectic taste for what to write. I, I enjoy writing lots of kinds of things, history and theology and just applicate, you know, easy, easy books to apply. Um, I have a couple big projects that are on my list that I'm excited about, but uh, I'm always thinking of what else to do. You know, I, I like I like the challenge of exploring a new thing. So I'll be doing all kinds of fun stuff, I'm sure. That's awesome. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation. This has been super fun. So thank you for talking to us about Sproul and the book. So everybody who's listening, go buy a copy of the book. It's really affordable. So just give up your lunch or something and buy the book instead like <laughs> there you go do it um, you'll be blessed by it you'll enjoy it you'll be encouraged um, so thank you Nate for writing the book number one I think this is going to help a lot of people and get them exposed to who Sproul is and be encouraged because I've always found reading like biographies of great pastors or theologians to be really encouraging so if anything else there, you, you take things away and you say, wow, that's really cool that he was just like a normal person. Or it's really cool that he did these things and that, that can encourage me to act in these sort of ways. I think we need more good and healthy models uh, so that we can live better as Christians. I mean, that's what Paul said to us, right? We should follow him as we follow Christ sort of thing. So having more good models like that is awesome. So go check out the book. Everybody's listening. Go buy a copy of it and give it a read. I think you'll really enjoy it. So thanks, Nate, for the time. And everybody who's been listening, this is the only Analytic Baptist and Confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.